You're listening to Stories from the Austin Stone, and this is Expectant, a season focused on stories of families from our church who have experienced loss, grief, hope, and God's love in the midst of the things they didn't expect while building their family. Today, we bring you a story from Will and Sarah. We got married in June of 2012 and pretty much immediately started trying to get pregnant. And I was 22, healthy, didn't have a lot of reason to be concerned. February of 2013, I had a suspicion that I was pregnant, but I didn't get a positive pregnancy test. That was concerning. And then we waited a couple weeks and I woke up and I was bleeding. So I called the doctor and I went in and she confirmed that I was in fact pregnant and was having a miscarriage. My first thought was, how did I miss this? And did I do something wrong? Because I'm 23 and didn't know anybody that had even had a miscarriage. She turns and looks at me and says, it's okay. It happens to a lot of women. You're really young. You'll get pregnant again. I remember thinking, oh, I shouldn't be sad. If this happens to a lot of women, this isn't a unique experience. There's not a value here. Like, it's not a baby to grieve. Hearing her tell me basically how I should feel really changed the way I grieved that miscarriage. We didn't really ever talk about it again, but what we did know was that now we really wanted a baby and to try to deal with the grief by getting pregnant again. And that was going to come back to bite us. And I wanted to get to the point where my identity as a mother got to begin. It felt like I had somehow failed, which meant there had to be a way to do that better. From February until we got pregnant at the end of the year, that was consuming for me. When in the middle of December, I found out I was pregnant, it felt like this was the end. Christmas is right around the corner. It's a week away. I'm at Target buying like a baby thing. And I went in for labs to confirm that I was in fact pregnant and that my levels looked good. And they looked great at the first blood draw. And then I went in at 48 hours later. The doctor called me on like the Monday before Christmas. Her words were, really sorry to tell you that your levels aren't doing what we need them to do. You need to prepare yourself for a miscarriage. It was devastating. So that became my prayer of, please don't put us through more trauma. If my body is already going to fail again, let it not fail me in the loss of it. So I miscarried Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and almost until really New Year's Eve. It was painful and uncomfortable and sad. That is when I began to realize we didn't grieve the first one. We knew that God was good and that He was infinitely and always good. But in the moment, it is never going to feel good to lose a child. There were moments where I was angry and would yell at Him in the shower and was crying and mad and didn't understand. There's very little space to feel the uniqueness of your grief and the fact that God can be good and the world can still be hard. Second miscarriage over Christmas, we definitely felt the weight of that, and then realized, yes, we really want kids. It's New Year's Day, and I know doctor's offices are closed, but I am on the phone leaving a voicemail at a fertility doctor's office. 
And I went through blood draws and invasive personal testing and going through genetic testing, which never occurred to me. Then the doctor calls us into the office, looks at us, and he says, there's no reason why you can't get pregnant or can't stay pregnant. We can't figure out what's going on. The only thing worse than answers is no answers because for me, then there's no problem to solve. So we go back in and and he says, we can do a a procedure called IUI. So we decide, okay, let's let's go through with IUI and, and try that. You go in for a pregnancy blood draw to find out if you're pregnant. And we go in and we do the blood draw and I'm definitely pregnant, which is exciting. And the doctor says, your levels are really, really high. It's good because you're pregnant, but it's also indicative of multiples, which to us was like the greatest thing ever. I'm thinking twins at this point. We're going to have two babies. I never have to do this again. This is going to be fabulous. We go in for the sonogram and he starts counting and there's baby A. And then he moves the ultrasound wand over and he's like, and there's baby B. Then he goes, and here's baby C. I think that's it. Pregnancies with higher order multiples are always complicated. You never get to term. The statistics were not in our favor. You're more likely to have complications that are catastrophic. But we didn't hear any of that. We're so excited and planning and dreaming for a life with three babies that I didn't hear the gravity of the situation. And and even if we hadn't, it it wouldn't have changed anything. We were put into the care of our obstetrician and our MFM, which is a maternal fetal medicine specialist, which is a doctor that specializes in high-risk or higher-order multiple pregnancies. At 14 weeks, it's our third appointment with our specialist, and I have my cervix check, and the doctor comes in to give us the report, and he's different. Starts explaining the cervix, how long it's supposed to be. Then he says, and this is yours. It's short. And the thing is, you have to have a long and closed cervix to sustain a pregnancy. I go home, mom modified bed rest, which means I'm pretty much flat except to feed myself three times a day and go to the bathroom and shower. And at 16 weeks, things look really bad. The doctor says, I'm going to go in and sew your cervix shut in the hope that I can manually prevent your cervix from doing what it's doing. He sews my cervix and things look great. He sends me home on strict bed rest. I am flat except to go to the bathroom. Go in at 18 weeks for the anatomy scan. We find out their genders. Baby A is a girl who we named Bridget Louise. And then we find out that baby B is not being cooperative and won't tell us. Baby C is super cooperative and we find out we're having a boy. And we named him Liam Charles super uncooperative baby B. We later find out she's a girl and we named her Vivian Page. Following the anatomy scan, they're all perfect. They do my cervix check and things are not good. It's begun to shorten again. At 20 weeks, we go in. It's a different doctor, one we've not met before. And she looks at us and says, things are not good. We're going to admit you for hospital bed rest. Hospital bed rest it's a, it's a wonderful thing that it exists and they can do a lot of, of things in hospital bed rest, but it is also the point when you begin to realize the gravity of the situation. And I'm still very firmly believing that we're getting three babies to the point that I look at the doctor and I say, can we be admitted tomorrow? Not tonight. And she says, why? And I said, well, we're having a baby shower tomorrow. 
And so the baby shower was this beautiful, like untainted time of just celebrating them and not being worried and not having to think about what was coming in a couple hours. We leave and we get admitted on Saturday. They put me in a labor and delivery room because normally you would go into an antepartum room, but there are no antepartum rooms available, of course, at this time. So we spend our first night surrounded by the sounds of laboring moms and newborns. (laughs) I'm thinking, that's going to be us someday. It's going to be fine. That's going to be us someday. But, you know, we're not there yet. By Monday, the first cervix check, my doctor says, "Uh, things are still not great. And we know you're flat. So we're going to do the final like step, which is a hospital bed position called Trendelenburg, a horribly uncomfortable position where they elevate the hospital bed so that your feet are above your head. I look like I'm 40 weeks pregnant. I've got three babies pressing on my lungs and now I'm upside down. And I spend 23 hours a day in that position. Three 20-minute segments to sit up to eat and that's it. I'll never forget that Joel Hurt, an elder from the Stone, came and visited me and he's a doctor, so he knows Trendelenburg and he walks in and he says, oh, Trendelenburg, huh? Are you okay? And I was like, I mean, no, it's not comfortable. He says, I feel like you need to know that Trendelenburg isn't going to be what gets you your babies. God is sovereign over this. This has been written before you even walked into this hospital. Like, you are doing everything you can. The weight of my gratitude for that, I didn't understand until later. I got up on the night of Thursday, October 9th, to take my first shower since checking in to the hospital out of bed for less than five minutes. And the morning of October 10th, I woke up in labor. Joel's words have been very important in not feeling guilt because I did everything that I could to keep them in was so freeing because I'd spent so much time feeling like my body is broken. I'm doing something wrong. Why why can't I carry a baby successfully? I was in so much pain, unbelievable amount of pain. And I paged my nurse and she's just dismissive. Well, you've never been in labor. Like it's probably Braxton Hicks. And I'm like, I need you to understand that like I'm a high risk pregnancy. We've learned on Monday that my cervix is basically just open. If I end up getting an infection, it could be fatal not only to the babies, but also to me. And for this nurse to rob me of my reality or my sense of agency in that moment is something I'll never forget. There was a long period of time where I questioned if that would have changed the outcome. And the reality is no. And I had to let that go. But nobody was talking to me like a person. And I was like, I don't care. I want my doctor. And so I get on my cell phone to call his personal cell phone. And I can't get through and I can't get through to him. And the nurse comes in and takes my phone from me. I am so upset and worked out. I'm like, are you not going to call my doctors? And she's like, well, let me put you on a contraction monitor first. Only then when it confirms what I've been telling her for an hour that I'm in labor, does she call my OB? Finally, they get a hold of him and he calls me personally and and talks to me on the phone and says, by the time I get to you, if you are in labor, there's nothing I can do. You know, he was like, I'm so sorry. And this is not how I wanted this to go for you. And my partner will be in there and I will check in and I will come see you tomorrow. 
The room is just chaos. They're cutting my clothes off of me and trying to get an IV line started and checking me. So we leave antepartum and I'm being wheeled down. People going and, and like seeing their babies and their wives that have just had babies and family are visiting and I'm screaming in labor. My OB comes over and she says, we have to talk. Because you've been on bed rest for so long and you've been on the blood thinner medication, I can't give you an epidural. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, what? Because this is already so painful and I'm barely getting through it with my mental health intact. She says, you have two options. One, you can do this naturally and you can be awake and Will can be in there or I can put you under. But if I put you under, he can't be in there And given how premature they are, you likely will miss their whole lives. And I'm thinking, what kind of choice is that? So obviously, I choose natural because I didn't want to miss them. I just keep thinking, what can I do? I do the only thing I can do. And I just break down and start praying and just pleading with God to give us anything to give us an inch and to give us something out of this day to to give us two babies or please even give us just one baby and then I'm just please just give me Sarah like help us to all survive this day and then all of a sudden the OB is like okay it's time Sarah I'm gonna need you to start pushing all I can do is from a short distance hold your hand so I do, and I'm trying to talk you through it. But what, I mean, what do you say, you know? I hear a noise, and then the doctor's saying, okay, here's baby A. Within moments, I'm holding Bridget. And she's beautiful. It's just this wonderful moment of like, I know that this is all I'm going to have, but I'm a dad. This is my baby girl. Just this, the feeling of fatherhood dawns on me in that moment. I'm just holding her and studying her and I look up at you and we get her placed on your chest and you look up and you see her wonderful face and you immediately know who it is and just the interaction that you have with her is is perfect and beautiful and the pain starts to set in for you again and so they they up the meds and so I take her back and I hold her and I swear to this day the Holy Spirit came through me and and just spoke words through me because they were not mine I told I told Bridget that I told Bridget about God and about Jesus and told her that she has a father in heaven and that he's going to take care of her and that it's going to be a beautiful place and that she's going to be there soon and though I wasn't going to be able to be there with her that that Jesus would be and that he'd be there for her and uh, that it would be perfect that she was perfect and that she was going to go be in a perfect place and very unlike me to have that kind of thought, much less the words that that came through me and 
you know, in between all of these things happening, the nurse continues every so often to come by and check for a heartbeat. And finally it says, that was it. There's no more. That she's passed. I don't remember delivering her, but I remember waking up and she was on my chest. And I was just obsessed with seeing all of her fingers and toes and limbs and, and, and unwrapping her. And like she moved from the cold air. I just remember asking and saying it over and over again, they're alive, they're alive, they're alive. Why are we not doing anything? And my OB, I just hear her going, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then the whole OR is crying. Bridget lived for one hour and 12 minutes. And 27 minutes after she died, Vivian was born. And then Liam is out. I remember hearing this liquid sound and wasn't really sure what was going on. I'm bleeding out, like pouring blood. And it's a very critical situation. Finally, by the grace of God, miraculously, they solve whatever is going on. And so at this point, Vivian has passed and Liam is still alive and and it's time to leave the OR. So we go back to the labor and delivery room. I'm sobbing and our babies are laying in a single bassinet together and the girls have died and Liam is laying in with his dead sisters and then he starts making end of life sounds. And I wasn't expecting that because they were so silent. They never cried. And you expect crying when you give birth and and the silence of them was deafening. It felt so wrong and broken for them not to cry. When he started making noise, I thought, this is it. He's in pain. Whether that's true, I don't know, but it felt that way in the moment. And so that's what I start going, you know, it's okay. Please go. Be with your sisters and be free. Vivian lived for one hour and nine minutes, and Liam lived for one hour and 36 minutes. And there really are no words to explain the pain of, of laboring to deliver a death sentence for babies and knowing that there's nothing you can do and that this isn't how it was supposed to be. And then you have to give them back, knowing that you will never hold them or see them or get any time with them. And I will never get over the feeling of watching the nurse wheel them out And then the silence, the silence of the room, knowing that our lives would be silent from then on. We ultimately chose cremation because I needed to be able to hold them. And so we have their urn and we can hold them and we wanted them to be together and we couldn't bury them together. Then the first week of grief starting with being wheeled out of the hospital with memory boxes instead of babies. Everything in me was crying out at the injustice, the injustice of it. And then the drive home was awful. The silence of our house was awful. And then coming home to a house full of baby things was awful. And so then that's what we did that week was return baby things. I needed to do all of it. And there was a trauma in that. Honestly, very little, if any, grief happened for me in that first week. It was a very surreal week, almost out of body. 
I think there was a level of, I couldn't care for my babies, and so I took care of my wife. I very much so avoided grief. I think I even started working about a week. Not even a whole week. I don't think I even waited a whole week to start work. Other guys asked sincerely about how things are going. It's usually phrased as, how is Sarah doing? How is your wife? You know, how are things at home? Is everything okay? It almost feels like, how are you taking care of your wife? That was such a struggle for me to accept that, like, I needed to grieve and that was more than just okay, that it was necessary for me to be emotional, for me to open up, for me to grieve with you. For me, grief was constantly crying. I laid on the floor of their nursery for hours on end. I mean, there were days I don't think I got up from their floor. I needed to talk about them and to relive it and, and, and keep it fresh. And I think we felt so different from who we had been before that day. And we felt so different from each other that it, it felt like we lost our marriage too. People would ask how we were doing and genuinely wanted to know, but I didn't trust that. I felt like a burden or we felt like stuck in our grief or that we would be judged for how we were grieving or how we weren't grieving. I think at the time I just was so hurt and so upset about what had happened to us that it was really hard for me to give the benefit of the doubt to the people that were saying things that felt really awful in the moment. And the reality was people are doing the very best that they can. You go from grieving to surviving, which is literally inhaling, exhaling, put one foot in front of the other, choosing to get out of the bed every day, to purposefully making plans to do something. It was March. We just looked at each other and said, we can't be in this house anymore. All we do all day is you go to work, I go to the gym because that's what I did. I buried myself in that because I wanted to punish my body. And so we took a trip to Scotland. It was the first time that we felt like we saw each other. It was the first time we really talked about them and about our experience. It was the, f the first time we laughed so hard we cried. It was the first time we really began to even talk about having another baby. And then three days into our trip to Scotland, I found out I was pregnant. And we were excited. We began to cautiously hope, gingerly test the waters of being parents again. And then we flew home, and the next morning, I miscarried. I was done. We were not having babies. Like the Lord was very clearly like telling us, no babies, no babies. There's a reason why we have these six babies and, and why we've experienced so much that we have to find purpose in the pain. We have to do something. And, and that's not true for everyone. Not everybody chooses that legacy. But for us, it was about, we need to tell our story. And so I started writing and 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 doing seminars and, and, and all of these things. And then I found out I was pregnant again. And I was mad, and we were scared, and we were excited. And then she kept growing and was fine. And we threw the kitchen sink at the pregnancy, had a cerclage procedure and injections to prevent preterm labor and all that. And I still went into labor at 32 weeks pregnant. The crazy thing is, on the one-year anniversary of delivering the babies at 22 weeks at gestation, I was 23 weeks pregnant with Charlotte. So every milestone lined up it still felt really raw to be the same gestation pregnant just about on their anniversary. 
So in walks the OB and, and she sees me like in full-blown PTSD, panic mode. I'm triggered. I'm back where we were, you know, a little over a year ago. And she looks at us and looks at me and says, this is a take-home baby. Maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but this is a take-home baby. And we have to get her here. So I need you to calm down and I need you to be her mother. Her birth was the most amazing experience because where they had been silent, she cried. And it's the sound that we never knew we needed as much as we needed it. Getting Charlotte, our daughter who is now almost three, changed everything. All of our babies changed everything, but she changed everything for me because a, her life and who she is and and the amazing miracle and gift that she is. But B, we were told after delivering her to not have more babies for a myriad of reasons. But we both knew that it would be very easy to allow our story of loss and heartbreak and fear to dictate her life. She is wholly unique and wholly individual and deserves a life where what we have been through doesn't prevent her from being able to take risk or, you know, have her experience. And so what that meant was really having to come to a place where we could live in light of what we had been through, but also in light of the fact that we have to live in this world. We've made the decision that we're only having one child, that Charlotte is it for us, that our family is complete, our seven children is enough for us. On the triplets birthday, every October 10th, we do something. Yeah, we believe very much in a legacy. And because it's part of our daughter's story, too, we want to include her in that. And, and we bake the same cake every year. It's a chocolate cake with a white frosting. And that's what birthdays are, because they were born and they did live. While hard, still a celebration of their life. Just the moment of being able to share about Jesus in the short, short amount of time that they lived and just feeling God's presence during that. I'm so grateful of their lives for that overwhelming sense of God is real and He is present and He moves in our lives and does things. And they're not always great. They're not always how you want things to go, but it is of His doing. After losing the babies, like I built a wall between me and God every night, brick by brick, and He tore it down every night, brick by brick. It's easy to be with someone in the good. It's not as easy to walk with someone in the hard, and, and God does that perfectly. And to see His goodness when we felt that there wasn't goodness or to see His goodness in its perfect form is a gift. To have a glimpse into the depths of His love for us in the fact that He willingly chose to go through what we didn't choose to go through with His own Son. But just because there's good in it doesn't mean that it's not still hard. It's never easy. It will never be easy. We will always grieve. And the reality is you can live life and you can grieve forever because while God is good, the world is still broken. I had spent 
all of that time looking for my identity in the wrong place and looking for my identity in my babies and the way I could solve the problem. And the, and the reality was my identity was meant to just be daughter in Christ. It makes it a lot easier to live in a world without your children when you know that your identity is secure and that your future is secure and that there is a promise and a guarantee on the other side of heaven. Here's Jessica McDaniel, a licensed professional counselor from the Austin Stone Counseling Center. Jessica shares more about this story with us. Sarah and Will's story is really complex and it carries a lot of layers to it. So it's hard to even know where to jump in after hearing such a long journey of complicated grief and suffering and multiple losses and multiple different types of losses. And so the main thing that that struck me throughout was just the the pain. You know, the the pain is so big, it's hard to even define. The triplets were born before they had a chance to to live and and there was nothing medically that could be done to to prolong their life. And so that in and of itself is is a very traumatic event. Um, The way that she had to give birth was traumatic. And so their reaction to that day and the subsequent days and weeks and years that followed delivering three babies, their reactions are normal. And their, their response to the trauma is to be expected. And there's not a right or a wrong way to grieve. For those of you listening who have not lost a baby, to be able to honor these families by, as best as you can, remembering their names. And so I just wanted to speak out in honoring and remembering specifically Bridget's life and Vivian's life and Liam's life here on this earth. And knowing that they had minutes here, those minutes were everything to Sarah and Will. I think that I I can see God throughout, but when Sarah at the end talks about her identity in Christ and how the only way she and Will could have ever gotten through something like this was knowing that their identity is already secure, that they have a perfect heavenly father who can hold them and hold the enormous weight of devastation, and also the same God who is holding all of their babies, not just the triplets, but also the three babies that they had lost through miscarriage. And so six lives that God himself was caring for and holding on to, in addition to providing all that Sarah and Will needed in this life right now. For many of you listening, this may be the first time you've heard anything like this, And you may be feeling complete shock and disbelief. I know my my reaction is often, this is so unfair. There's no way it could get any worse. And then it gets worse. Their, Their nightmare continued. It didn't end. And if you're listening and feeling utter disbelief, That's a really normal and common reaction 
but also know that that you can take these questions to God. It's hard to believe that something good could come out of so much loss. But then when we go to God, He reminds us of who He is and who we are in Christ, and that, as Sarah said, our identity is secure in Him. And so we can begin to trust Him and begin to see hope, maybe not right now in this moment, but an eternal hope that will not leave us empty and and that this hope can fill us with the love of Christ. Thank you for listening to today's story. For more stories like this, you can visit austinstone.org stories. To learn more about our counseling center, visit austinstonecounseling.org. Join us next week as we bring you another episode from Expectant.